It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. If you enjoy listening to The Edge, support them by subscribing to The Edge on iTunes, Stitcher, and you can listen through the iHeartRadio app. Get busy listening. This is The Edge. The advantage it means. Hey, look, I just spit on me for no reason. That's horrible. Is there some comfort in uncertainty, do you think? You're a degenerate. Because Australian Shepherds need action. Wow. Yeah. This is The Edge. That's a self-loathing term that I use. For oh, got it. You're listening to The Edge with Mark Thompson. Welcome to the show. I'm Mark, and I'm here with J. Elvis Weinstein, the renowned filmmaker, comic. We had an argument about, uh, not an argument, but a discussion yeah. about how you should be introduced once. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird because I, I think filmmaker might be more prestigious, but, yeah. I, but I self-identify as comic above all, really. That's what he said. You can just call me a comic. I think, well, yeah, but well, you know, I get filmmakers in and I get actors in and I want them to know that you know you bring a certain professional history to the conversation. Yeah, whatever will impress our guest more is the way to go then. Today, Stephen Tobolowski joins us. He is an actor. I think most people are going to know him from Groundhog Day. He was the annoying insurance guy in the insurance agent. I know him as the character actor who will deliver in any role you put him in. I worked with him once years ago. Where did you work with him? On a show called Dead Last on WB. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, Californication, he's been in Glee, Heroes, Deadwood. He's in Silicon Valley now. And as I mentioned, Groundhog Day, you'll recognize this. Hey, Phil? Phil? Phil Connors? Phil Connors, I thought that was you. Uh, how you doing? Thanks for watching. Hey, hey. Now, don't you tell me you don't remember me, because I sure as heck fire remember you. Ned! Ryerson! Needle-nosed Ned, Ned the head. Come on, buddy. Case Western High. Ned Ryerson, I did the whistling belly button trick at the high school talent show. Bing! Ned Ryerson got the shingles real bad senior year, almost didn't graduate. Bing! Again! Ned Ryerson, I dated your sister Mary Pat a couple times till you told me not to anymore. Well? Ned Ryerson? Bing! <laughs> so did you turn pro with that belly button thing, Ned? Or uh, no, what? Phil. I sell insurance. What a shock! Do you have life insurance? Because if you do, you could always use a little more. Am I right or am I right or am I right? Right, right, right. But what makes Stephen Tobolowski even more interesting is uh, he's an author and a storyteller. He's had these rather bizarre experiences in his life, and he chronicled them all in two books, and I read them both, The Dangerous Animals Club and My Adventures with God, which is his latest book that's just come out. And it's autobiographical. He does weave it together. So Stephen Tobolowski will join us. First, we spend 15 minutes talking politics, and we are doing this show the day after the 4th of July, so some 4th of July reflections on the country. I'll step outside for that. Yes, we'll just do that with uh, Michael Shore for 15 minutes, and then we'll jump into Stephen Tobolowski with J. Elvis Weinstein. Thanks for being here, by the way, all the ways you support us. If you can't actually leave us money on our site, and a lot of people can't. You know, these are tough times, J. Elvis. Right. You can't just go leaving money everywhere. No, you can't just hit that PayPal link and leave us money, maybe, but you can shop on Amazon through our links. You just click on anywhere it says Amazon on our website, edge-show.com. 
If it says Amazon, click on it. Same Amazon as normal, but we get a little something to help us keep the lights on. By the way, Jay Elvis and I, we don't get any money for this. There's no money. No, but we have logistical people and technical people, and they all have to get money, and it's our pleasure to pay them, and we'd like to have you help us pay them. <laughs> all right. Oh, God, so, help. And that's it. That's our preamble. Stephen Tobolowski, Fast 15. Thanks for being here. Let's get going. I want to thank you for all the ways that you support my friends on the Edge podcast, edge-show.com. Stupid. Why is that dash? Edge-show.com. Edge-show.com. Time for the Fast 15, politics and more with Michael Shore, everybody. Come on. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Happy... uh... Day Happy after the fourth of July. Belated Fourth of July to all of you. Yes, this show is being done the day after the Fourth of July, a day of patriotism, a day of reflection. We don't really reflect a lot, actually. It's just mostly patriotism. No, uh, I saw a play in New York with Christopher Reeve. You'll remember him. Played sure. Superman. A tragic winter of his years after being paralyzed. But it was called the Fifth of July, which I saw it at a time when I was too young to see a play that serious. It was really dull. But whenever I think of the day after the 4th of July, obviously I think of that play. And that's the end of that story. Well, look, Born on the 4th of July, the movie that Tom Cruise did, yeah. was the first time I thought, wow, Tom Cruise is a good actor. You know, prior to that, I thought, he's an action guy, you know, good looking, sort of doing yeah. his thing. But Born on the 4th of July, if you haven't seen it, it is a terrific movie. And he does a great job as an actor. Yeah, I saw it. Uh, my cousin is in it. He's got a little part in it. So I saw it because of that. Now, who, who's your cousin? His name's Josh Evans. Yeah, Josh is my cousin. And he was in that. And, and he played his son, if I'm not. I feel terrible that I don't remember this. But he played a Kovic in that movie. Wow. And I thought the movie was great. I mean, those movies are not my type of movies generally because they're kind of, they tell great stories. And Ron Kovic's story was certainly great. But- uh, but I remember feeling the exact same way, that blown away by the performance in the movie. Like, I liked the performance more than I liked the movie. I expected Tom Cruise to be taking a role where he plays a Vietnam vet right. who was called upon to go back in and rescue a bunch of guys who can't get out, like that kind of movie, like right. a sliced alone Rambo-type mission. Yeah. Uh, instead, it's a troubling portrait of a, a Vietnam vet who is haunted by not only Vietnam, but the new life that he has to lead. Yeah. Uh, no, I, that's true. I, Meantime, that, so we're sort of in the shadow of the Fourth of July, and the you know uh, patriotism wafts over the land right. t- today. And this was the least excited about America that I felt in a while, and it came ironically on the heels of Canada Day, which was the 150th anniversary of Canada. And they don't even do as much on their 150th anniversary as we do on our 200-something anniversary or birthday. Well, because we're bigger and better than Canada, so we do things big, Michael. <laughs> right, that's true. I'm sorry. There was fanfare with George M. Cohan. Did he have, was he from Canada? I don't think so. But the arguments, you know, people say, we're the greatest country in the world. And it's a really interesting conversation because on many scores, we are. We are the free country. We have the longest constitution. We do more, I would say, more good for the world than most countries do because we're able to do that and we choose to do it. We also do a lot of things that are not in that realm. So I, the, the argument is, well, Canada's right next door. Canada doesn't, doesn't have guns. Uh, they, Canada doesn't go to war and they do peacekeeping. They're, so know, we are better than they are, is what you're so saying. I guess we're we have guns yeah, and yeah, we go right. to war, you're saying. And, yeah, that's right. Exactly right. And that's not just, listen, I, they're, but I made you think that it's okay to be pissed at your country for a little 
while, too. That it doesn't mean you don't love your country to be pissed at. Well, right? truthfully, the reason that this country is supposedly a great place to live is because yeah. you can get pissed at your country and you can be really, really vocal about how right. pissed you exactly. are and nothing bad happens. No, no, that and that's that's a fantastic truth. And that happens in Canada, too, by the way. You know, they, yeah, they no, we're have, not the only free world. We're not the only, that's, that's what I'm trying to remind me. But listen, you know, when, when I was uh, 17 or 16 years old, uh, my father you know, loved me, but it was probably the, his least excited time to be my dad. So <laughs> so this is my least excited time to be American, and there are, I assume, good years ahead. Well, Michael, you, if you ever should ascend to becoming president, and right. you come up with a slogan like make america great again like donald trump has mike america great again um mike america great again that might be good yeah Yeah. thanks make america great again i believe was from reagan originally wasn't it originally that slogan i mean reagan was morning in america no no that was that was a commercial it's morning in america right well let me just say this because i was alive for the ronald reagan presidential campaign president reagan former president did use the phrase in a campaign slogan, "Make America Great Again," okay. and it yeah. is uh, you can you can Google it, you can get on your little devices and wiki it. Right, but it wasn't his. It wasn't the slogan of his campaign. Right? Originated with the Ronald Reagan 1980 presidential campaign. Okay, Donald that... Trump subsequently adopted the slogan, which then he used in the 2016 presidential campaign. I don't want to get too far off it, but but I guess what I'm no, saying. No, but I, but I no. find this stuff fascinating. Was it something that Reagan mentioned? Because I've always heard it. You know, attributed to Reagan, but I don't remember it, be, it being a centerpiece to his campaign. Here's why it was such a great phrase for Reagan to use. Right. Because during the time that Ronald Reagan was getting into the presidential race, it was a different time in America. United States at that time was suffering from awful economic issues. Right. In other words, there was double-digit inflation and there were double-digit interest rates. Right. So you're, you're dealing with an economy that and is— And an energy crisis. Exactly. There, there were, were, there were lines at the gas pump. Right. It was a dismal showing by the Democratic president that preceded him. And it was his second swipe at it. And his first swipe in 1976 when he ran for the presidency, he was looked at as somebody who was trying to take the Republicans past their mess of Nixon and, you know, at that time, Ford. And then then he just piled Carter on top of it in 1980. So it was everybody. So let's go back to a little bit before that, to Kennedy, really. Right, and, and, and Carter had a presidency that foundered. It also, as you'll remember, was marked by a, an Iranian hostage situation. Couldn't get those hostages out of Iran. That was what right. that movie Argo is about. So when you use the slogan, let's make America great again, back then, as you say, it resonated in a real way like, hey, let's get this country back on its feet. Let's get the economy back. Let's get our hostages back. Let's make America great again. Right. This seemed as though it was a little more of a stretch for me because things weren't awful. That We'd come off a horrible economy when Obama took over, and then actually yeah. the, the Obama administration, and believe me, I'm not a fan of everything they did at all. He did rehabilitate this country economically. Correct. I mean, there was a good stewardship by Obama, right? I mean, which is basically what, what Reagan alleged Carter did not give us, and which certainly Nixon did not. And a lot of people thought Ford did, but that was such a brief time. Um, yeah, and, and the other side of it is, during the campaign, when when Trump was asked what make America, you know, when was America great, he 
he referred to the Eisenhower years, right? Well, the Eisenhower years, if you were a black person on a bus in the South, you couldn't sit where everybody else did. You couldn't sit in the movie theaters. You couldn't go to school. Uh, America was not great for anybody, for everybody then. And we talk about this at, from, at different times, but, you know, about sort of being nostalgic for a way we never were. And, and that's what make America great is, is to try and think of when, when there were no brands and emblems on T-shirts and everyone was at the ballpark cheering on Ted Williams and Mickey Mantle. So it, it's not really how that was not great for every American. That's a great line. We're nostalgic for things. What's the line again? I think I said we were nostalgic for a way we never were. We were nostalgic for a way we never were. That's a great line. Now, I would put that on a hat. Would you? <laughs> Hold on a second. Hang on a second. It's a big hat. Anyway, I mentioned the Make America Great Again thing. Right. Because this 4th of July, we're doing this the week of the 4th of July. 4th of July has just passed, and Donald Trump got the song, Make America Great Again. <laughs> when I say Donald Trump, I don't think he wrote the song. In fact, right. I know he didn't. But this choir in Texas... Uh, You're kidding. They're from Texas. Created this song, Make America Great Again. And uh, I know you want to hear a little bit, so I will play it for Mark, you. can I just interrupt and say, could you play a little bit for me? Lift the torch of freedom all across. going to say all of you stop it you can you believe i don't think it's bad actually well it's not bad in in this sort of objective what's great that you don't have yeah what you don't have in america anymore is is the campaign song and uh they're fantastic now there there was a i did a story on uh, when i was out in 2012 covering the campaign on these two girls that were going all of san rick santorum's events and he had they had a song called rick santorum is our man and it was great because it was, you know, it was a great campaign song harkening back to Nixon now and, you know, those old great good songs. But Let's see if we can find that. This is the Rick Santorum campaign song. It's called um, uh, Rick Santorum is... Oh, yeah. Game Join On. That's right. We finally got a man who will stand for what is right. Game On. Victory's in sight. We've got a man who understands that God gave the Bill of Rights. God gave the Bill right. of Rights. Wow, that's uh... we got to listen to Rick, the Rick Santorum part. There's hope for our Maybe nation again. The first time since we had Ronald Reagan, hope for our nation. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. 
At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Backwards back on our shore. Constitution rules our land. Constitution rules our land. Yes, I believe Rick Santorum is our man. So hope for our nation once again, maybe for the first time since Ronald Reagan was was really a great. uh, But there's something great. I mean, forget who it's for and what the lyrics are. There's something great about the campaign song. So I'm totally with it on on the. But the the Make America Great, they put the emphasis on America. We say Make America Great again, right? Right. That's how people say great again. They say Make America Great again. So the the emphasis is on America. Oh, I didn't Make even notice America that. America great again. Yeah. But here's the finish. They finish strong. You know, you got to have a big finish, I think, on, you know, all these songs need a big finish, right? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Here we go. That's a big finish, Michael. Come oh, on. I love Sondheim. <laughs> well, we're thankful tonight for our opportunity to premiere that song, Make America Great Again. All right. There you All go. Right. Yeah. They're Rockwellian, right? I mean, in term, not the singer, but the artist. It's like they're this hokey America that existed. Um, but there is something sort of cool about the campaign song. Uh, you know, it's not yeah. one that I'm going to be humming a lot. But that's the thing about these, right? I mean, it, that's what McGovern voters were saying is they were walking around singing Nixon now and because it was so catchy. And if you have that catchy tune, it works. This one might not catch. Well, we're almost out of time, and we'd really wanted to get into a lot of different things. But when you think about this country and you think about the Declaration of Independence, the number of people who signed the Declaration of Independence, if you're listening right now, wherever you are, think in your head, the Declaration of Independence, what would be your guess as to the number of people who signed it? Well, I I incorrectly guessed. Uh, I said 89. Yeah, and that was a really high guess, and I thought, I would have guessed, I think, I'm going to say I would have guessed 30. Literally, that's just me kind of trying to remember what the document looks like. Right. But the actual number of people who signed the Declaration of Independence, 56. Not all of them signed it on July 4th, uh, 1776, by right. the way. Some of them faxed it in, actually. All right. <laughs> Text your response to. <laughs> you know, by the way, July 4th was the date on the document, the Declaration of Independence. It is not the date of the, of the resolution. They, right. It was July 2nd, but it was the printer who wrote July 4th, and it just became July 4th. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I think you have a fact about the Declaration of Independence. Indeed, I do. I'm trumping you on the, uh, on the number of signers. Do you know who is the most valuable signature of anyone to get the, the signature of the, the most valuable signer of the Declaration of Independence? Well, and it's not Jefferson or Adams or... Or Hancock, which you would think because yeah. it's so prominent. It's not. I felt like Button Gwinnett was on the tip of your tongue. Mm. 
Now, Button Gwinnett, can you give us a little background on Button Gwinnett? Well, Button Gwinnett apparently, and he only signs something like 50 documents ever. So there are only 50 known signatures of Button Gwinnett. And he was so that's why his signature is so valuable. Exactly. And collecting all the signers is a thing. Of course, you can't collect the declaration, but people in the autograph world try and get signatures of of everyone who signed the Declaration of Independence. And I think there are 10 or 12 in private hands of Button Gwinnett. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, you know, four presidents either died or were born on July 4th, which is kind of interesting, I think. Yeah, that's right. Jefferson and Adams died on July 4th. Yeah, uh, James Monroe did, and Calvin Coolidge was born on July 4th, I believe. Yeah, that I think is there cool. are four. And Michael Short, well, this week after the 4th of July, it has been a pleasure to visit with Michael Shore. And, yeah, I don't uh, feel like we got a lot done, but this was a really fun talk. Yeah, nice nice chat. We got a whole um, half year ahead of us here. Yeah, well, you know, we're coming up on the, what's the word for 250th anniversary? Because yeah. there's sesquicentennial. Mm, sester centennial. Sester centennial. Yeah. Wow. That's a uh, great uh, trivia question. Sester centennial is the word for the 250th anniversary. Uh. It's from the Latin. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> wouldn't, have, wouldn't have thought that, huh? Oh, really? The Latins Wow. Came up with never that. <laughs> would have thought it's from the Latin. All right. right. Listen, Michael, thanks for joining us. We love seeing you. And make America great again. Make America great again. Make America great again. Step into the future. Step into the future joining hand in hand. Santorum is my man. Hey, everybody. Why don't you do me a favor and like the edge with Mark Thompson on Facebook? Yeah, that's going to bring in the kids. This is the edge. You're listening to The Edge with Mark Thompson. Join us on the web at edge-show.com. Stephen Tobolowski, welcome to our show. Thank you very much, sir. I met you for purity of this of the oh, truthfulness of it all. I met you a few months ago. I got your books and I got right into them, and they're great. In fact, I took them on vacation, and like, and I was laughing while I'm reading them, and and some of the stuff made me really emotional and choke up. I mean, there's some very intense moments, and there are two books. The first book, that is the book that you wrote first, is called The Dangerous Animals Club. That is correct. Yeah, and it's named after a group that you were part of when you were a kid called the Dangerous Animals Club. Yeah. We, we weren't big on imagination when it came to names. We were kids. We were like six, seven years old in Dallas, and we were eager to capture every dangerous animal we could without our parents knowing about it, of course. The stories in that book, The Dangerous Animals Club, are wild. I mean, some of them are show business stories, and we'll get to that in, in a second. Some of them are personal stories, and we'll get to those as well. Uh, you're here with J. Elvis Weinstein, as you no doubt know by now. Josh is a documentary filmmaker and a comic. Uh, you wrote a second book called My Adventures with God, and that is also full of stories, different stories. Where you capture all the deities you can. <laughs> the Dangerous Deities Club? <laughs> but people know you from acting, from seeing you on screen. What are you recognized for? What do people go, oh, I know you from what, most commonly? Well, right now, I would say probably Groundhog Day, playing Ned Ryerson, the insurance salesman, a Groundhog Day. But uh, uh, newsflash, uh, I've just about become too famous for Gelson's. Oh. <laughs> Gelson's is a grocery store here in Los Angeles, and uh, Silicon Valley 
has put me, playing Jack Parker on Silicon Valley, has put me over the edge for Gelson's. However, in one day, I went to Gelson's, which is the super fancy store, and, and people were stopping me right and left. Excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt your shopping. Could we have a picture with you? Could you sign this? I also went to Ralph's, which is the store you go to to buy paper plates and tissue paper. No one recognized me there. And then I went to Staples. And at Staples, they actually thought I was a homeless person. (laughs) And the security people came by to see if they could help me leave the store. So that's a Hollywood story. In a way, that does sort of represent the swath that you cut. You know, it's sometimes, depending on what you're doing, some are very limited ones, sometimes a very broad one. From that, Silicon Valley is the higher-end show, I guess. Yeah, yeah. People, and people it's who not, can afford HBO can also afford Gelson's. In this there you go. <laughs> you, can, you can make any kind of uh, scientific calculation you want from that. Is it regional, too? Or when, uh, you know, because all the projects that you're in are, you know, seen around the world, a lot of them. I mean, like, I think Groundhog Day and a lot of the movies you're in and even television you've been in is repurposed for overseas. Right. Uh, Certainly when I go overseas, I I did some stories over in Scotland in Edinburgh at the Fringe Festival, and people were yelling out their windows, we love you, Stu, Stu Beggs from Californication. So they watch, of course, in Scotland, you watch Californication (laughs) all the time. That's about the only fun you get there besides playing golf. And they also love the Goldbergs overseas a lot. That plays over there a lot. So, and I guess the most surprising thing was I was in New York doing a law and order. And a car drove by and the guy rolled down the window. Hey, Stephen Tobolowsky, you're the guy who tells the stories. So I thought, wow. There you go. There you go. Yeah. That was, that was, I honor that shout out. It's the sweetest candy these days. (laughs) (laughs) You grew up in Texas, yeah, in Dallas, Texas. First of all, and I only mention this because it's sort of a big part of your life, and it is a recurring thing, your Judaism. I can't imagine like there's this big, thriving Jewish community in Texas. Well, there is now, but back then there were three Jewish families where we grew up in Oak Cliff, which is about 30 miles outside of Dallas. So uh, it was rough. <laughs> there were more Nazis in Oak Cliff. <laughs> Then there were Jews, and and I'm not using— Still the case. We we use that term sort of loosely now, but I mean people who are actually members of the Nazi party. I remember my sixth-grade basketball team. John Rutledge was our guard, and he invited us over for pimento cheese sandwiches and Pepsi-Cola after one of our many losses. We lost— just about everything. So we, his mother invited us on over to his house. We walked across the schoolyard to John's place, opened the door, and there in his living room was a bust of Adolf Hitler. Wow. I mean, a bust. I mean, they paid money for this, and it was flanked by two German flags. And on the coffee table in front of the fireplace was Stormtrooper magazine just laid out like it was highlights in a pediatrician's office. And and, and you're like, I love Star Wars. No! <laughs> and, and, you know, as I walked, I was in sixth grade, and, and I'm walking in, and I'm thinking, like, there's something kind of scary but kind of kind of cool about this, too, in that John and and his family was so cool about being Nazis that they didn't feel they had to tidy up after a bund rally. You, you know, that's, we how could, that's how Hitler gets you, by the way. Yeah. He's kind of scary, but kind of cool. <laughs> he, he came in the back door that time. Uh, yeah, but but that's that's kind of where we grew up. Did you feel 
the need because you were such an insanely small minority? Did you feel the need to fit in, like to, to hide your Judaism, or or did you just feel like, oh, it, it just is one of those things? I imagine, I imagine there is a period of time in every young person's life, and by young person I mean a kid, where you're desperate to fit in. And I already wasn't with a last name like Tobolowsky. So in library class, I was always put at the same table with Mark Dombrowski. So Mark Dombrowski and Stephen, we were we were put together because we were unpronounceable. We we were there amid everyone else. I wanted to fit in. I wanted a different last name. I wanted to be a Baptist. I wanted so many things to where I could fit in. But then late, you know, you also go through periods in time where, hey, little showbiz story. I'm doing Bring a TV on. show. And I'm looking out the door, and there's an electrician talking with uh, one of the guys, uh, Grip, you know, a guy who's carrying sandbags. And they're out there comparing scars. And the electrician is saying, well, this is where I got 50,000 volts right here. And you could still see the line there on my arm. And the, and the uh, Grip is pulling up his pant leg saying, well, I got some eye bar right through here. When, and I realized, I wrote down in my little book that there is a period of time in your life when we're more proud of our scars than our perfections. And I think that happened to me in my life. You know, that there was a period of time where I wanted to fit in and be different, but then there was a time that I was proud of my differences and I was uh, proud of, well, obviously for my book, <laughs> proud of my mistakes. Yeah, and just because we're talking about the, the Judaism thing, you kind of reconnect with it later in your life. Yeah, later in life, I was I was in my 40s and I was working with Larry Miller uh -huh. on a movie, great comedian and writer and actor. And Larry is Jewish and he said, uh, we were working in North Carolina. He said, sometime if you wanna come to our little synagogue, I'll show you around. And I, uh, I was working on a sitcom and uh, Barry Kemp was our uh, executive producer. And he addressed us all the first day and said, well, guys, we're going to be working on Rosh Hashanah, which is one of the big two high holy days. You know, it's like working on Easter Day. Uh, does that bother anyone? And Richard Kind, who was in the show and funniest man on earth, you know, he can make you laugh of anything. He says, oh, well, the only two Jews you got on this show are me and Tobolowsky. And we're the best kind of Jews in the world because we don't believe in anything. <laughs> and I thought that was funny, but it stung. And... That night I couldn't sleep, and Larry's words came back to me, that there was this little shul on Moore Park Street, and I woke up at daybreak, got some coffee, and I took off down Moore Park. I had no address, but I, I knew it was in the area because Larry lived in the area, and I went to look for something Jewish. And hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. There in front of this little, little house with a star of David on top was an old man sweeping the street in front of the house. And I go, excuse me, excuse me. Is this a synagogue? He goes, this is a synagogue. I said, listen, I need a ticket for Russia Shana this year. And the old guy goes, no tickets. There are no tickets. I said, no, you don't understand. I need a ticket this year. Can't do it. There are no tickets. I'm sorry. We're full up. And I said, listen, you don't understand. I really, 
really have to come this year. Can I talk to the guy who's in charge? And he said, well, I'm the rabbi in charge. I'm also in charge of sweeping. I'll tell you what, <laughs> if, if you want to see what we do, why don't you come tonight? It was Friday night. Come to Sabbath services and see if you like what we do. Oh, and I thought the old guy schnookered me. So I called up my wife and said, baby, I'm going to be late for dinner. This old rabbi kind of cornered me into coming to services tonight. My wife's going, what? And I said, I'm just going to go to services tonight. And I went to the synagogue after we rehearsed, and I sat at the back row, and there were about 20 people there. It was like nothing. And the old guy came out, and now he's in a prayer robe. And I mean, he really looks like he stepped out of a page of the Talmud. And he wanted us to begin singing this song. I had no idea what it was. It was all in Hebrew. Didn't remember the Hebrew. Didn't know anything. So I was sitting at the back back row trying to look reverent and everyone starts singing and the rabbi notices me but doesn't point me out but no he goes stop 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 this is not a time to look at our prayer books now is a time to sing and be happy it's the happiest time of the week it's sabbath let's put our prayer books down and just uh sing so we started again and of course i didn't know anything and i sat there with my mouth closed sad sack on the back row and the rabbi stopped again and again without looking at me. He said, you know, there's so many reasons why people come to a synagogue. For some of us, it may have been years since we've been here. And we may have forgotten everything we ever knew. We may have forgotten our Hebrew. We don't know anything. You don't need to know anything. I happen to know Hebrew very well. I will do all the Hebrew for you. All you have to do is have joy and be happy and be here. And... He had me, he had me there. And there's so many different faces of Judaism. And I was lucky that when I came back, I ran into Rabbi Meyer Schimmel, who uh, presided over the House of Mercy that night. And it seems like, I mean, it seems like that spirit is like very much like the root of Hasidim was, you know, was they, you know, they were illiterate peasants. And they, so the only way they could express their faith was through song and expressions of joy with one knowledgeable person at the head of it. Absolutely. Bing, bing, bing. You you are completely right. And, you know, there are some people who try to come back to Judaism and they run into a wall of, of rules and laws and observances and they feel it's too daunting. Right. But I ran into a guy that was filled with joy and wisdom and kindness. And that door opened wide up. And so in my 40s, I embraced it again and embraced it big time. And, and, Mazel tov. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, having Stephen Tabalowski say bing to me is pretty big. Yeah. <laughs> you, you'll cut that out and put that on your iPhone. <laughs> you know, when I'm reading through somebody's life and the way it's remembered and you have all these great stories, you do have some insane stuff happened to you. I'll get something in a second, but I want to first get to how you remember all this stuff. I was thinking about this. You asked me to write a book about my life or even a magazine article about my life and just include some good stuff. Or even uh, a concise question. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> I do tend to ramble a little bit in the questioning. I don't think I could remember anything and certainly not in any sort of way to stitch it all together. How do you remember these stories? I mean, you remember dialogue and... Uh, well, it's, it's kind of a two-part question. First of all, I had a goal. You probably got to the part in one of the books that I had a terrible injury. Right. We'll get one to of, that. One of those wacky things. And, uh, one, I mean, a very serious injury. Very serious thing that's in 2008. And the doctor told me it was a fatal 
injury, which was obviously not. <laughs> as, I, as I sit here in iHeartMedia, uh, you know, thank goodness it wasn't fatal. That's but, like the worst thing a doctor can say, isn't it, John? Yeah. I'd say just by definition. That <laughs> to is the worst thing. To a living patient. It's almost like the beginning of one of those jokes. And, and I went home and I thought it was kind of amusing that he said it was a fatal injury and that I was alive. And then I thought, but wait a minute. What if what he said was true? And what if I really died? What would I have missed being able to tell my two boys about their dad's life? Huh. Well, there, with the injury I had, there wasn't a lot I could do but sort of sit, but I could write. So I began writing the stories that I wanted my kids to know about their father that I'd never told them. So I, in terms of process, Mark, I had direction. I had, some, I had a specific task I wanted to do was tell my boys the story of my life because I died on that mountain. And so I, I wanted to tell stories of the Dangerous Animals Club and, and the trouble I got in as a kid, my first loves, first jobs, all of that kind of stuff. And first heartbreak, the, the important things in life. And what began to unfold was a kind of mosaic. And then we get to your second point which is how do I remember all the damn stuff? Boy, that's a good question. First of all, I do have a pretty good memory. But second of all, for some reason, and I don't know why, and it makes me wonder about fate, is that I always kept notes. Even when I was a kid, even when I was a teenager, really? I, I would take notes not like a diary. but I and, and my wife would attest to this. I have boxes and boxes and boxes of notebooks filled with all sorts of notes some of which, you know, I discover and I go like, oh, I don't remember that at all. And I read these notes of when I was in Rio de Janeiro and I'm going like, oh, my God. And then it all comes back to me. And, and it comes back to me in a, in a different kind of way. Even though I, I found this one notebook of my one year in graduate school at the University of Illinois before I escaped. And I'm reading this day-by-day sort of journal. I kept, didn't even remember I kept the journal, total blank. And I'm reading this, and not only do the facts of the journal start coming back to me, but also, like, the way the ground smelled, like when I walked from my apartment on Green Street to the Cranert Center, and the way the leaves crushed under my feet, and the way Trino's pizza tasted, and the way the beer tasted, and the pinball game I played, like it all came flooding back to me, almost as if these little memories were touchstones that opened the gates to even broader memory, assuming that they're true. And do you think that you were, (laughs) do you think that at the time you were writing them, you were writing them in the form of keywords? Like, were you, you you know, were you just going, I need to remember just this thing? But I, I, you know, it's, it's very interesting. I got a phone call, uh, since last we met, uh, from Beth. And I, Beth is a big part of your life. Big part of my life. Uh, first girlfriend, uh, Beth Henley wrote Crimes of the Heart. And in our time together, you know, she, she went from a person who wanted to be an actress and wasn't acting to winning the Pulitzer Prize. And, you know, getting nominated for Academy Award, you know, for Crimes of the Heart. Um, I, I got a call from Beth, and she was saying, how do you remember these things that happened? And it isn't like the key words 
I th- the, my answer to her was succinct. I said, catastrophe. And I said it as sort of a joke. The reason I remember it all is because of catastrophe. But the more I think about it, I think it's true, is that we glom on to the catastrophes of the things we remember in our lives. Like when I was with Beth at the University of Illinois in Dangerous Animals Club, story of when the the town we were in, we we were told we had 15 minutes to get underground because we we're going to get hit by seven tornadoes, not one, seven tornadoes. And I'm going underground. Wait a minute. Excuse me, uh, Mr. Weatherman. Where do I go to get underground? And so Beth and I spent 15 minutes running, saying goodbye to each other. I love you. Goodbye. And we're running around trying to find some place where we're not going to die. And again, it was not fatal because (laughs) our school was built on a swamp and tornadoes like to go to high ground. And so the seven tornadoes converged on the town, went around us and destroyed Hummer, Illinois. Destroyed it, wiped it off the face. It you was have, on a hill. Wow. You have so many close calls. <laughs> I mean, Catastrophe. You, have, you really do. I mean, I, I'm astounded by the number of close calls in your life. You know, you say something, and I remember that this story from the book, and you'll love this, Jay Elvis. Stephen, a pothead kind of for a while, right? And, <laughs> well, for a while. I love it. You're right. <laughs> no, no, no. But I meant, we always get into this because I'm always amazed by people who do a lot of pot. And still functions so well. Now, now, but I was a late bloomer. This, I was in the Woodstock generation. I never drank a beer till I was 19. I didn't smoke one bit of marijuana until I was deep into my 20s, mid-20s. Everybody was a pothead at that time. And and uh, But no, at one point, I remember you want to get some pot. And you have to lie to your mother about... (laughs) When you don't have the skill set to escape your mother to buy a pound of weed, you are not an outlaw. this this was this was that you were starting with a pound is impressive though. Well, well, I went I was in a rock group in Los Angeles and we were one of the biggest unknown rock groups in Los Angeles at the time and Mark you remember that was the this is the the eight what the 80s it was it was like really everybody was in a rock group. Were you in a rock group? I was not. Oh, I was you were not. not. You were the one who was, who was maybe not, but but this town was <laughs> this town was held together with acoustic. No, I feel foam. like an even bigger loser than I did before we started. <laughs> yeah, but everyone in our band we, we needed motivation to rehearse, and so this came in the form of marijuana. And a friend of ours knew someone in Dallas who was a ex-convict who had access to lots of weed at super discount superstore prices. And so they said, well, Stephen, you know, if you go to Dallas to see your folks, maybe you just bring some marijuana back. I go, sounds good to me. <laughs> Sound plan. <laughs> yeah, that's not risky at all. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. And, they, and they said, well, you know, if we bring a pound back, then we could sell a few of the ounces and we can make back some of the our investment. And then we have a few extra kind of communal uh lids we could use to smoke for rehearsal go this sounds like a terrific idea this is really a startup yeah exactly (laughs) that is the business plan of every pot dealer and this was without thinking that in texas for a a pound a pound of marijuana is worse than a felony yes back then they threw you into segaville prison where you enter a leading man and exit a character actor (laughs) (laughs) it is it is. It was not. A, it was the dumbest thing in the world. So I get to Dallas. I call this guy up on the phone. 
We're going to meet at the Casa Linda Hotel. Google it if you guys are in Dallas and you could revisit this place of my infamy. And he says, this is the deal. You know, we're going to go there at, I want you to be there at 9.50, because the 8 o'clock feature is going to be letting out. 10 o'clock feature is going to be going in. The parking lot's going to be totally crowded. No one will notice us. I'm in a red pickup truck. So I manage to borrow my mother's my mother's little Buick, and I drive to the castle in a parking lot. It's completely empty, completely empty. And there's a sign on the marquee saying, uh, theater closed for private party. So I pull my car into the empty parking lot. Uh, My uh, drug dealer pulled his red truck in next to me. I get out to go see him, and then a police car pulls in next to him. So he yells, Something vile I probably can't say on the radio. And he tears off on on his way through Dallas. This is before the age of cell phones, so I could not call to abort the mission. So I take <laughs> off after him. And, and by the, the way, po- aren't you in your mom's car? I'm in my mom's little Buick. <laughs> and then the police car is following me. And so we're all going deep into the heart of Texas. And I'm going, where, where, what's going to happen? What am I going to do? I, I had no idea. I began to cry behind the wheel, my first uncertain steps toward felony possession. And then the police car just pulls off, just vanishes. And I go, <laughs> Johnny Law probably had some, something else to, uh, yeah, he had lost big, the heat, bigger fish to fry. So anyway, the truck ends up pulled into a clearing by White Rock Lake, overlooking the lake. It was beautiful that night, moonlight on the water. I pull up my little Buick. I come and I get in the car. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Or and I meet Albert, who who is this guy, and he's a was a big man with a vest with no shirt on. Oh, hey, how you doing, Stephen? You got the money? And I go, well, yeah, Albert, I got the money, and and I show him twelve hundred dollars. Oh, that's a lot of money. Why am I doing this? And I give Albert the money. He goes out, gets the brick of marijuana and brings it and puts it between my feet. And he says, so what do you guys do out there in L.A. all the time? What, are you in a rock group? I hear you're in a rock group. I go, yes, sir. And as much as I enjoyed jawboning with, with Albert, <laughs> I wanted to get out of there. And I look in the side mirror of the truck, and there are police with guns drawn creeping up the side of the truck. And, of course, that truck mirror says, uh, warning, objects may be closer than they appear. (laughs) This was really bad news. And so I go, Albert, Albert, they're police. They're police. And they're coming up and they have guns drawn. And Albert kind of looked at me as like a kind of gangster cowboy type. He looks at me and goes, kiss me. I go, what? Kiss me now. So I lean over, and Albert and I start making out, and he gives me the tongue, and he gets a little freaky with his hands, and that's when the cops jump up and yell, freeze! And it is amazing how that works. When the policemen have guns drawn and yell, freeze, you do exactly that. They pull us out of the car, assuming we're two gay guys in Texas, and they never look in the truck. 
They never see the brick of marijuana. So they go, what? They go, what do we got here? Romeo and Juliet. Which one of you's the girl? And they look at me and sit on me. <laughs> well, sweetheart, what's going on? And I go, well, well, you know, I'm I'm from Los Angeles, and I was just here visiting mom and dad, and uh, it was such a beautiful night. You thought you'd come here and get it on with Charlie Daniels in the truck? And I, and I uh, well, he says, I'll tell you what. And then the guy gets right in my face. The cop gets right in my face. He says, listen, we don't like you queers here. Now you go home to mama, and if you ever come back up here again, no more warnings. We go straight to jail. And I go, yes, sir. Yes, sir. We go straight to jail. Yes, sir. Thank you for the warning. Thank you. And they leave without looking in the truck. And you, you went back and you actually took the pot, I think, in that street. I, I took, I took, I go back to my car and Albert comes you'd over. You'd feel so me. dirty if you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then I was just in it for the sex. You're not out here for the hunting, are you? <laughs> I ended up putting the, the brick of marijuana. I, I take all the foil off because that's going to set off the alarms and I wrap it in plastic and I realize I have no luggage to take it back in. I have to do it in carry-on. You're flying back with it. That's a whole new wrinkle to the yes. story that I did. Yeah. That's why I said it's risky. I yeah, st- that's a great plan. I, yeah, I, gonna- st- I stick it in my boot, and Mom and Dad drive me to the airport, and they're all hugging, kissing me goodbye. And I put my little carry-on, and the thing goes through. Alarms go off. Bzz, 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 ding, ding, ding. All the crowd comes around. Policeman pulls my bag off. He goes, son, is this yours? I go, uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Do you mind if we look through it? Uh, no, sir. Please go right ahead. At that point, okay, you want to talk about God. <laughs> At that point, God really does enter your life in a way that you never expected. I was ready to fall on the ground and plead for an upper bunk at Seacoville. But Just it's weird the, because you didn't know what set it off because you had taken the foil off. Yes, the foil was off. And and the guy starts going through my bag, and I see foil. I see foil, and I go, wait, 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 wait. Was I so stupid that I left some foil on? And my mother steps up and goes, oh, Stephen, that's mine. Uh, I know you like banana nut bread, so I made you a banana nut bread and put it in your bag this morning. Officer, does he have to take the banana nut bread out? (laughs) And the police officer looks at mom and looks at me and goes, well, you know, I think we could trust him with a banana nut bread. (laughs) Go on, son, get on the plane. And I got on the plane. Oh, my God. (laughs) Now, that is stupidity of the highest order. Your look has helped you in all facets of life. <laughs> there are two snapshots of you cheating very nasty consequences in that story. Very nasty. Yeah. Very, very nasty consequences. That was, you know, the law. There was, another. I think, in Dangerous Animals Club, I have the story where I was held hostage at gunpoint in a grocery store. Hello. That was where I was on the uh, I was on the other side of the gun. That uh, was Ralph's, not Gelson's, I'm guessing. Yeah. Oh, let's watch that, everybody. Yeah. Kachung. Uh, yes, and it was actually a Tom Thumb. And the guy puts the gun in my head. I don't know why I picked you today. I don't. Does that sound like the other guy in the truck? No, it's okay. Yeah, it's, it's okay. <laughs> I don't have that uh, cornucopia of voices. Unless you kiss him, it's not too bad. No, no, no. I didn't kiss this guy. And I ended up with that gun in my forehead talking for, well, you see, I talk. So i talking for hours talking about how this guy reminded me so much of my father and making up complete 
fabrications of of my relationship with my dad. You remind me so much of my dad. Do you work with tools? <laughs> my dad, my dad, you know, he built a bookcase at our house. Hey, you, uh, do you have a hammer at home? Do you have a hammer? I start talking to this guy. Being your own hostage negotiator. Being my own hostage negotiator. And I talked and I talked and I talked till suddenly, I, I guess I've, I'm figuring it must have been 45 minutes of my nonstop lather. And then the air, like, goes out of my soul and... The adrenaline drops, and I realize I'm a dead man. And the only thing I could think to do was to invite the guy over for dinner. And I said, you know, what time do you have? Now he's got the gun in my head. And he's, like, looking at his watch with the gun to my head. Well, it's so, you know, it's, it's 545 or whatever. It's, oh, man, it's getting late. I got to get this chick. Hey, you doing anything later tonight? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm getting a lot off my ch- Hey. Why don't you come on over? You could have some chicken. We can have some mangoes and white wine. You can meet my girlfriend, <laughs> Beth. I mean, she'd love to meet you. Um, and, and you, you know, just I'm going to go now. And so I pushed my grocery cart past him, and he put the gun in the back of my head. And I hear this voice in my head saying, don't turn around. Don't turn around. Just keep walking. Don't turn around. And I kept walking down the aisle, and the voice says, if you get to the stack of Pepsis, you could turn and run. Get to the Pepsis, and you may live. You could be free. I get to the Pepsis during my nonstop blather of 45 minutes of nonstop talking. The SWAT team had come in the back of the store, and they had guns pointed at both of us through the food the entire time. And as soon as I got to the Pepsi-Colas, those guys jumped over the food. And for our listening audience at home, next time you're in Ralph's or Gelson's, take a look at how high those grocery shelves are. I mean, they jumped over those seven-foot-high shelves, and they had my potential dinner guest bound and gagged and tied up, like, within about eight seconds. And they carried him out like a carpet on their shoulders. And I'm walking through this deserted store, and I go up to the deserted checkout counter, and I just wait with my groceries. (laughs) And then... Policeman comes up and taps me on the back and says, son, you can just go. (laughs) Yeah, that stuff's on the house, man. (laughs) (laughs) I got home and uh, my girlfriend, Beth, Beth was there and said, well, where were you? I said, well, I was just held hostage at gunpoint. She said, well, it took a long time. I said, I know this hostage thing takes a lot longer than you would expect. I'm starving. So we cooked up dinner, and that was it. It was the only time I ever left a store without paying for my groceries. (laughs) You have a situation where you were hitchhiking or you had car trouble and you decided to stop. That's Oh, that was so sad. It feels like that's kissing cousins to that. (laughs) Yes. uh, Beth and I, we had a, when we were in college, we used to go in on a Greyhound bus, pick out some sort of city in the wilds of Texas, go to the city, explore it, and come back. This defined... Also another period of your life where you guys were very serious about this exercise that you did. Yeah, we loved it. We loved exploration. And I realized one way that we learned to control our time, and that I think is part of the process of maturation, is not just being time's bitch, but actually being able to control our time is coming up with spontaneous celebration. And that is something Beth and I were very good at in terms of imagination is spontaneous celebration. And so we would go out to these little towns and explore and come back. Well, on the way back once, this bus broke down, and they said it's going to be five hours because they have to send another bus out from Dallas, which was two and a half hours away, and then two and a half hours back. And so Beth and I think, well, why don't we hitchhike? 
That sounds good. We'll just hitchhike. So we get out of the bus, and we start walking in the direction of Dallas, Texas, not knowing really where we are. And a van pulls up in front of us, and the side doors open. There's a black family in there. There's a father and mother in the front seat driving. In the back of the van are kids and a grandma. And we jump into the open side door of the van. And uh, I go, we're on our way to Dallas. So just, uh, yeah, thank you. And not a word was said by anyone in the van. The grandmother closed the door, sat down, and we drove in silence all the way to Dallas. The husband who was driving is looking in the rearview mirror at us and back, and I'm thinking like, what? what is with this van? What is with these, uh, you know, is the, are these like a, a family of criminals or something? Right. What is this? We get to East Dallas, and I'm saying like, okay, guys, you can let us out here. Thank you so much for giving us a ride. And the father turns around and says, giving you a ride? We had just stopped to change drivers, and you jump in here. I thought you were kidnapping us. We (laughs) thought you guys were criminals. (laughs) We had terrified those poor people. Oh, God, I still think about that. That shit happens to Uber drivers every day now, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, you go from being terrified to realizing that you were the terrifier. I was the terrifier. (laughs) I was the bad guy. I know people want to know about Deadwood and David Milch, who is a character in himself. What was your experience with that? On Deadwood, we we had a routine. David Milch always loved to shoot in natural light, sunlight, and it meant that you shot when the sun rose, which means everybody had like a 5 a.m. call. So we would all head out to Disney Ranch, uh, which is out by Magic Mountain out here in California. We would have breakfast in the dark. We would rehearse for David Milch and the director of the sh- of the individual episode. And all the directors were great. Let me tell you, the people who worked on Deadwood were the sharpest knives in the drawer. Uh, we often would have two directors working. We would often have two film crews. One of the film crews that worked on Deadwood was the same film crew that I worked with on Mississippi Burning wow. with Alan Parker. You're talking about the sharpest knives in the drawer. And just because you mentioned Alan Parker, he was a big part of your life. You talk about him in your book. Big part of my life. Alan Parker was a great, great mentor to me. And I didn't even know it at the time. I was shooting Mississippi Burning, and uh, I was doing a big Ku Klux Klan scene, which was outdoors, required 3,000 extras. So they had to make sure there was going to be no rain. And the weatherman always was having rain in the... So I was there for 10 extra weeks. And so while I'm sitting there, Alan Parker came up to me and said, well, I hear you're interested in directing. Would you like to follow me around and see what I do? And I go, sure. Thinking like, this is what big directors do all the time, is have like numbskulls <laughs> right. like me Please follow them around. Me. I love so that. I follow Alan <laughs> Parker around for a few weeks, and then it changed. He would, he would bring me into a... a planning session for the next day shoot and he was talking about the scene and then he would stop Stephen what would you do and I go uh, uh let's see I would start with a moving master and he, not good bad idea uh but it would work but it's not good and and then he he kept challenging me in every phase of filmmaking about editing where would you put the edit mark where would you start the music what would you do this and and I always failed these tests I always failed his test, but afterwards, I realized, my God, the gift this guy gave me. At the premiere of Groundhog Day, Alan Parker was standing in front of the theater, 
And I remember I was going with Andy McDowell here in Westwood, and Andy and I are walking in, and there's Alan. I run over and start hugging him. And I said, Alan, Alan, I never thanked you. I never thanked you. I never realized what you were doing for me and the gift you gave me. Thank you so much. He goes, oh, leave me alone. Leave me alone. I hope the movie's good. I hope the movie's good. <laughs> and it was good. It, but, of course, yeah, it was so transcendental for you, and you were trying to communicate that to him, but you would have no part of it in that moment. <laughs> no, no part of it. Oh, God, he's so great. Anyway, but, so back to Deadwood. The, uh, Deadwood. And so this is the same crew from Mississippi Burning and yes. Mount Parker. And, and, and so one, one you would crew. rehearse. You would rehearse for the director of the day and then david milch would often rewrite the scene immediately and would change it to step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Automatically, okay, well, instead of having this in a saloon, we're going to have a cattle stampede, and you're going to be on opposite sides of the street, and you're going to be run over by 200 head of cattle. And they would bring the cattle in. I mean, they had the cattle waiting in the wings. Uh, you never knew what surprises David would throw your way when you did it. I remember uh, one scene I was doing with uh, Tim Oliphant, who was taking me to jail. And it was a simple walk and talk scene through the through the main street of Deadwood. And David Milch felt the the street was too empty. So he took a farmer and a giant bull. The bull was waiting in the wings. They they, they had so many animals wait. So a farmer taking this giant bull walking uh, uh, down the street with us. So Tim and I are doing the scene. And while we're doing the scene, the bull lifts up his tail and defecates, which is poops, which is whatever you want to say on this radio station, and and all over me. So I'm I am covered with bullshit. And I am talking with Tim Oliphant. We're trying to do the scene without laughing. Continuing, and now I'm squishing when I walk with bull gradure. And we're, I'm going, <laughs> and the scene finishes. The director yells, cut, and David Milch yells, print. And I go, wait, wait, David, David, the bullshit all over my pants. You can't pay for that to happen. That is the best ever. And Stephen, you know, on Deadwood, we don't wash the clothes because we want the stains to be consistent. The people back in those times never washed their clothes. And let me tell you, he was true to his word. I was covered with that bullshit for the rest of the season. I'd walk into my trailer. Oh, my God. Wow. But yes. Yes. The, the grittiness of David Milch is something that sort of, uh, I mean, he was right. He's a, and that, and that project with the language and uh, right. But you, you reference it in sort of almost, I think you reference Shakespeare when you talk about Milch's dialogue. He seems, and, he seems to me like Stevie Ray Vaughan. He's like the real, he's, he's like the real, real thing. thing. I remember uh, Powers Booth. Uh, I'm toasting dear yeah. Power, dear PB. I went to college with Powers and we acted together so many times and it was so lucky we got to act together on deadwood and when i first showed up on deadwood he said tobo here's my advice you can't do the regular bullshit you do on any other show here on deadwood uh you're gonna have to learn your lines (laughs) (laughs) and 
you're going to have to bring it from level most shows, you know, you just learn to level one, and then you hope to get to level two. On Deadwood, you're going to have to learn level one, level two, level three on your own, because David Milch is going to throw something at you, and you're going to have to bring it to level four. And that was so true. I remember one scene we did with Powers. Uh, Powers and I, we, we were plotting some evilness against uh, Swearingen in, in, in one of the scenes. And it was one of the L.A. torrential rains was happening outside. And it was one of the scenes where Powers is going, okay, this is what I want you to do. And this is what I want you to do. And, the, you know, it's a plotting scene. So my my job is I'm coming in from the rain outside and the camera is following me up to the bar at the Bella Union. And then the scene begins. Well, one of these takes, there's a horse that's outside and it's drenched. And the horse says, I'm sick of being in show business. And the horse follows me into the bar and walks up beside me and stands at the bar. Powers, not knowing if David Milch had added this horse to the scene, starts doing his speech to the horse and going like, okay, I want you to go this way. And then he talks to the horse, I want you to go over here and I want you to do this. And, And he includes the horse in the planning session. And then they call God. And Powers comes to me, Tobo, um... Was the horse part of the scene? <laughs> I said, no, Powers. You just you just did part of your monologue to the horse. Uh, but it's going to be great at the cast party. <laughs> Way to go, Caligula. <laughs> How did you get into show business performance? How did you, when did you identify that's the thing you wanted to do? And, and how did it proceed? Well, I wanted to be an actor from the time I was little. I mean, five years old. I always wanted to be an actor. It was the only dream I really pursued. It was the only dream I really had. Even though when you're that age and even when you're in college, you think being an actor means studying Shakespeare, Shaw and Chekhov. And you realize, oh, in real life, guys, you don't do Shakespeare, Shaw and Chekhov. People don't do those things anymore. <laughs> but what, they, at what age did you start like self-identifying as an artist, though? Oh, well, you said artist. That's a difficult thing. Uh, you know, you identify as an artist early and then later you realize you're lucky if you're just a hack. Sure. You're lucky if you just get paid. And I came out to Los Angeles. (laughs) I came out to Los Angeles simply because I thought it was an easier place to be poor. It was an easier place to fail, and I did everything I could to try to work in show business. I did children's theater, and when they told me that there was no room in the company, but they were starting a Spanish-speaking company, and I said, "I'll be in that too." And that's a great story. Yeah, that was bad. I I remember I called my mom afterwards. I said, I got a job, mom, in show business. She says, what are you doing, sweetheart? And I said, well, I'm going to be in the Spanish speaking company of uh, 12th Night Repertory Company. She goes, Stephen, (laughs) do you speak Spanish? And I go, well, no, mom, no, but I'm sure I could learn it. (laughs) And and she goes, how can you learn Spanish? How much time do you have before you have to do this show? I go, well, 10 weeks. I think I could learn it in 10 weeks. 
So I go to the library. At least enough to do Shakespeare. <laughs> I go to I go to the library in North Hollywood, and they had a book: Learn Spanish in eight weeks. I think like, yeah, that's not enough lead time. I don't have I to. Start, I don't have to start for two weeks. Yeah, that gives me two weeks to brush up, and then they go, oh, learn Spanish in four weeks. This is better. No, well, I kept looking, and they had a book. I am not kidding. They had a book that said, learn Spanish in one hour, and I go, this is the book i want learn spanish in one hour of course they had words like oldsmobile chevrolet you know they didn't really have spanish words federal you know they they didn't have any real spanish words so i ended up learning the entire show in that 10 weeks the way uh shocking blue learned she's got it oh baby she's got it i'm your venus so i learned it all phonetically and the first show was in indio california and they the first show was for fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, and I did everything perfectly. Uh, it was amazing. I was amazed at my acumen with Spanish. And then they sent out the fourth, fifth, and sixth graders and brought in the first, second, and third graders. And the adrenaline of the first show turned my Spanish Spanish into alphabet soup in my head. So now I couldn't remember anything. And so the little girl comes on stage, and I'm supposed to – I'm playing a, a bad guy, so I'm wearing a big sombrero and a huge mustache. And I go, Paso Jovencita, which means, you know, come in, little girl. Instead, I said, Peto Jovencita, which means fart, little girl. And all the kids are going, <laughs> At one point, instead of saying, do you have any questions, I said, uh, sit on it and squeeze – and all of the teachers are screaming and running around and bringing the children down. And I, Mark, I was fired on stage. Wow. My first professional job in Los Angeles, she looked, uh, Jenny, Jenny Gago looked at me and goes, you know what you're doing, don't you? You are fired. <laughs> and I was fired on stage. But I will say that uh, they hired me a few weeks later to be in the English speaking company. But the, but. One thing to young actors out there, say yes, even to the Spanish-speaking company, because what happens is the yes train and the no train, each one becomes contagious. And if you start saying no to opportunities, not only will more no's come your way, but opportunities will begin to vanish, and then you'll end up with nothing. So say yes because you'll someone that you meet on the Spanish speaking company may give you the key to another job down the line. It's funny, you know, uh, I do a lot of voiceover stuff and you really want to audition for TV national spots, right? Cuz those pay more to begin with and then the residuals are high. You end up with a lot of radio commercials that don't pay a lot when you do them and they don't pay a lot in residuals. But to your point, you feel like, I can't just read the TV stuff when they send you the radio stuff. you got to read that also. I didn't even think at your point, the train parallel is a great one. I just think, I don't want to be that guy who goes, ah, you know, I'm too big to read radio. Because then you'll, before you know it, be nowhere. Before you know it, you, you are nowhere. And you begin by trying to get little jobs in television. And uh, here's a really important moment that happened to me. And I'm not sure it's in the books. It may be in the books, but it, it's... It happened. You remember that show, Remington Steel? Sure. sure. Molly Lapata was the casting director of that show. That's a show with uh, for younger boys and girls. That's a show with uh, <laughs> Pierce, Pierce Brosnan. Brosnan. And who was the other? Uh, somebody Zimbalist, wasn't it? Stephanie, Stephanie? Zimbalist. Stephanie Zimbalist, yeah. And uh, 
so I got called in many, many times, and I want to say more than 20 times over a three-year period to be a guest star on on this show, Remington Steel, and I never got the job. And I kept getting more and more auditions, like I had the first audition, then you go to the producer's audition, then I kept getting higher and higher up the food chain, and I never, never, never got the job. And of all things, this is before the age of cell phones. Again, Molly Lapata found my home number, and she called me at home. And she said, Stephen, there is no reason why you didn't get this part. Don't let this hurt you. Believe in yourself. You were excellent. You should have gotten this part. Keep doing this, and you will get parts. And uh, I was lucky enough to run into Molly a couple years ago. And to thank her as to that phone call on that lost audition did more for my confidence than any number of parts that I actually got. Sure. It sure. meant so much to me. It takes, wow. Yeah, it takes just moments are what, are what turns things. We, you were talking about Larry Miller. And Larry Miller, for me, I opened for him when I was 20 years old uh, at a, the Comedy Gallery in Minneapolis. And it was right before I was moving out here to Los Angeles, and I was scared shitless to move out to Los Angeles, but doing it. And I, and I literally just said, you know, talking to Larry after the show, and I just like, you know, I'm, I'm moving out to L.A. in a couple of weeks. Any advice? He just goes, you're ready. And that was it. That's, he just said two words, and I was just like, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm going to <laughs> It just like turned everything, and it just, you know. No, that can buoy you in, in so many different ways. Absolutely. I had one real primal moment that I also take with me, and and this works not only for actors, but in any profession, I got one of those rare network auditions over at Fox, which uh, if you don't know the hierarchy, you, you audition for the casting director, then you audition for producers, then you audition for the studio sometimes, and then you have to audition for the network. So by this time, you really are scared. Uh, you, you've gotten to the end of the line, and if you get this audition, you get the job. So I went to Fox, but I got the time wrong. And I got there an hour and a half early. And so I go into the room where I'm supposed to audition, and the room is totally empty. And there is the chair that I'm supposed to sit in in the middle of the room, and there is the video camera aimed at me. And there's the table at the other end of the chair with the five seats um, behind that table, and I get sick to my stomach just looking at this room and the setup. And I'm going like, wait a minute, there's nothing happening here. It's a room. What could I do to change this room to make myself feel better about this audition? What's happening? I thought, it's where my chair is. My chair's here. There's the camera. Then there's the table and the five people. What if I took my chair and moved it behind the table? How do I feel then? And I go like, I feel good. I'm sitting behind that table. And I thought, on every audition, no matter where they put the chair in my head, I have moved the chair behind the table because then I am a collaborator working with the producers rather than being judged. And when you do that, your stress level goes down and you audition much better. So that's just an attitude you enter the room with now? Yes. I move my chair behind the table in my head. Right. If I really 
move the chair, they would throw me out of Obviously, the building. But <laughs> they say, Stephen, please move the chair back to where <laughs> we had it. But still, please. when you're a producer and an actor comes in, just someone who... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Makes a strong choice. It's <laughs> yeah. a pretty good thing. There so. you go. You know, but it seems to me that, I mean, most of your stories involve, you know, your your entry point to most of your stories is your openness and your willingness to, to allow things to happen and, and then to react. Good to and bad. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But that uh, that takes both self confidence that you'll be able to react correctly when when the unexpected happens. That it that is true. That is true. Either that or foolishness. Right. But uh, the, you know, there's a fine line between self confidence and foolishness, as we learn in show business. Um, but I I was I mean I I want to go back to the uh, your your the concept of uh, spontaneous celebration that yes. you were talking about yes. and and talk about like what are some of the tenets that you guys applied to the concept of spontaneous celebration. Well, uh, uh, let me t- let me jump ahead to the present day with my wife, Anne. Uh, we've been married now, believe it, uh, just about 30 years. Nice. And during the course of our life together, Anne converted to Judaism. I had no idea she was going to do this. This was a shocker to me, such a surprise. And it began a string of sp- Spontaneous celebrations. In in Judaism, you have all of these uh, obligations or tasks or blessings that you're supposed to mitzvot, that that you're supposed to do at different times, and each one has blessings. And you can look at them as obligations, but then you can also see them as celebrations. And we filled our life with planting a new tree, with uh, a celebration over the first fruit, a celebration. Our yard is a picture of celebration. So we do that all the time. And another thing, there's the, we also have the anti-celebration, the spontaneous anti-celebration. When I had my heart surgery, I had open heart surgery and, oh boy, that was a bad one. 2011, did not have a heart attack. Thank goodness. There's another one where I dodged the Grim Reaper. But Anne and I, we made a pledge to one another that if we didn't want to do something, we could bail anytime on our way to the theater and we suddenly feel like, I don't feel like watching that tonight. We could bail. At a party, we could go, I got to go. Anytime, anywhere, we could bail on celebration and be together and just leave because when you have heart surgery, you have to do that a lot. You have to bail because you instantly run out of energy and you go like, I have to lie down. Sorry, guys. So that gave us freedom too. So there again, we controlled our time. I have a similar similar situation with my wife as well, and also the uh, the tenant that you you only have to you have to accompany each other to things only if they declare it is important to me that you come with me. <laughs> no, that's great. Yeah, because there's a lot of stuff where you're forced. You feel like oh, I got to go to this because I'm the right. other half. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, your relationships with women are, I mean, you really, it, it's not like tons and tons of women or anything, but, you know, you get attached to Beth, and then Beth 
it goes away ultimately and she's not with you anymore. But you, you have these really healthy relationships with women. I, I don't know where that comes from. Maybe this is from a guy who has less healthy relationships <laughs> with women, so I'm fascinated by it. But you, you do have these sort of pacts and understandings and projects that you do together as a couple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, and and it's very odd because Beth and I and Ann and I, uh, you know, we're all artists. You know, I'm an actor and a writer. Beth was an actress and a writer. Ann is a director and a producer and an actress. And that's a tough mix when you get a couple and both people are in a very uncertain profession. It is very, very difficult. And I, I guess I was lucky that way in that both the you know these two major relationships in my life that the people i was ann and beth are brilliant you know it helps that they can think outside the box that's always important in a relationship because i i always this is one discovery i made with ann uh that we always think a relationship is about the bedroom it's about the emergency room the the person you want to have a relationship with is the person that will sit with you when you are waiting there at 2 in the morning and you need to see a doctor, and this is important, and they are there with you. When I had my heart surgery, the first night, of course, you're in ICU for a couple of days. Then they moved me to the cardio ward, and the first night I was in the cardio ward, Anne had to go back home to take care of the kids. And that night did not go well for me. Uh, I tried to call for help on the help button, and nobody came. And I was stuck, and I had a little uh, docking error with the pee bottle. You know, they have a pee bottle beside, and you know it's like... You roll over, and you can kind of pee through it. It's the spaceship thing, you know, where you're just going like, okay. But your whole chest is, you know, stapled together, so there's... Yeah, you're drugged up and... It, it didn't work. So I was covered with blood and urine. It was not, It was very much like a night at the Palomino back when the Palomino was happening. And Ann came in, and she she took over. You know, bless her heart. She took over. And that's what you need in a relationship. You need that kind of foundation that, that will come in and save you when you need to be saved. And uh, that's why... In terms of my rabbi who was sweeping leaves, uh-huh. yeah, he said that there are four things that guide any life, the physical, the mental, the emotional, and the spiritual. It is a mistake to think that any one of them is more potent or powerful than the other. We live in an age now where we think the physical is more important. Everybody's going to the gym all the time. But... Uh, the others go wanting, the intellectual, the spiritual, the emotional, are were dying on the vine. And you need all four of those to survive. And I was lucky that in both relationships, the main relationships of my life, the people understood that you needed all four to survive. When you're reading these books by Stephen Tobolowsky, and by the way, we'll put links for the books on our website, edge-show.com. There is a sort of philosophical union to a lot of this stuff. I mean, this 
Aristotelian logic that you apply early on in one of the books. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was, I thought, wow, it, it, you seem like a very well-read guy. I don't understand how you have time for a lot of the stuff you know in the book and refer to in the book. You're learning lines, you're doing Shakespeare, you're doing all this other crap. You're also getting into Greek philosophy, and when did that happen? Uh, certainly throughout my whole life in junior high, high school, especially in college, Anne asked me, how do you know this stuff? How do you know the stuff about Philo of Alexandria? You know, at, at, you know, the year zero, the, the great philosopher. And I go, because for some reason in my brain, I always felt it was important. I felt Egyptian art was important. I need to remember this. I certainly felt the plays of Thomas Kidd were in, as important as the plays of Shakespeare. There's just not as many of them and Marlowe. And, and, and so for some reason, I in, invested so much time in honoring the the things I studied and read, and they just didn't go in one ear and out the other. That's what happened to me. And I liked everything. I liked philosophy. I liked art. I loved music, and I adore science. And, and so everything I read uh, excited me, and I remember it. It seems like honoring honoring uh, the past probably ties into why you were uh, why you were diarist why you're a diarist as well. I probably thought it was important. I probably thought what I was doing <laughs> was important. Catching tarantulas back in, in at the creek that it, was yeah, and the uh, and the most dangerous animals. You talk a bit about in some of the times you touch on show business in all these different ways. You talk about this fact that they shoot a lot in Canada, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, uh, it, it doubles for a ton of different things in Canada. Canada, it, it was well, it goes through periods. It, it depends where the tax breaks are at the time. It depends where the tax breaks are, and also it just seemed that for a period of about ten years, everything was shot in Canada as long as it had an alien, a vampire, a ghost, or a yeah, well, a space person is an alien. Mm-hmm. So I, every time they said, "Stephen, you got a job in Vancouver," I'm going like, "Okay, what is it?" You know, a blood drinker from Mars. It, it and that's when David Duchovny was doing X Files. Right. There, that was the that was the jewel in the crown was being on X Files. I was never on X Files. I was on always the lesser shows. I was I, on X Files, uh, Stephen. I don't mean to lord it over you. <laughs> Whoa, yeah. What I was on two episodes. Oh, God. Well, I was reporter number two. But oh, the point is, yeah, well, I was on it. But reporter number two is probably <laughs> a better part than reporter number one, if my experience. Because reporter that... number one is probably the straight <laughs> reporter. But reporter number two is the one has got character. If you play reporter number two in two episodes, is that recurring? <laughs> How about that? I, thank you. I should, uh... But it's true. I was on X-Files. And that's my only brag. So thank you for coming up against it. Yes. Um <laughs> The uh, <laughs> I remember the character actor formula. People always ask me about being a character actor. When you have a complete name in a script, like Captain Jack Sparrow or uh, Richard Kimball, you have a full character. You're probably the lead in the movie. If you have one name and a job description, you are a subordinate character, and it works like this. If you get the job description and the first name, Sheriff Charlie, Ringmaster Bob, you're in a comedy. If you get the job <laughs> description and a last name, Detective McLaren, you are in a drama. There is a level beneath this, and that is when they just, well, 
Not to say anything bad. Reporter number two. Reporter number, to, well, reporter number two. I played homeless man number two. <laughs> and, and I just say that homeless man number two was better than homeless man number one. It was a more colorful part. But there's parts beneath this, too. And, and I, I have heard of this, even though I have not played it, that it is uh, age and geographical location, like old man on a train. These parts are so bad. Right. You know, they got nothing. You know, you're there to eat craft services. You know, so on Silicon Valley or on, hey, uh, Norman Lear's One Day at a Time, I played Dr. Leslie Berkowitz. Yeah. So I could say, like, man, I'm close to being a lead on that show. I'm Jack Barker on Silicon Valley. Uh, I'm Principal Ball on uh, the Goldbergs, even though it is a comedy, I do have a job and my last name. So it kind of <laughs> rides against my theory. I shouldn't have brought that you one even up. Have a, you even have a nickname on Silicon Valley. It's not just, it's a, Action it's, Jack uh, Barker. Right. Yes. Mm. Well, so that I want to go, I want to take you back. Okay. To, uh, I want to take you back to, is it true that you were in a band with Stevie Ray Vaughan? Well, let me just say this. Stevie Ray Vaughan played with us in our band. Uh, we were in a band called Cast of Thousands, uh, we were very bad. Uh, it was kind of a folk rock band. I played the guitar. Bobby Foreman was actually talented. He ended up in the New Christie Minstrels. He wow. he was he could play any one of those like Wayne Newton guys that could right. play any instrument and had a great voice. And Jim Rigby uh, didn't play any instrument, but he wrote the songs. He's very clever, and now he's a Presbyterian minister in Austin, Texas. Hello, Jim. And so we were picked to be one of what. I'm saying five garage bands in Dallas, Texas in 1970, 71. And each band could play two songs on this album. They were going to call A New High. And we were going to market it by selling the albums door to door. And we're, <laughs> on, you know, like it's a, a real big. So we're on our way to the studio to record this. And Bobby turns around and says, well, I got a kid from our neighborhood to play lead guitar with us. Um, who, who, Bobby? Uh, a kid, uh, Steve Vaughn. Uh, he's Jimmy Vaughn's brother who also plays guitar, but he's free. He's like 14, but he's really good. I go, Bobby, <laughs> you get this 14-year-old kid to play on our album? We could play our own. We could play our own guitars. And Bobby turned around from the front seat to me in the back. He says, Stephen, shut up. This kid, Stevie Vaughn, is going to make us sound like we know what we're doing. He's really good. So we get there, and Stevie is sitting on a chair with his humbucking pickups, Gibson guitar. beautiful. And he goes, okay, guys, why don't you just play a little bit of the song so I see what we're going to do. I can see what I'm going to do. So we start playing our first song, and he stops after about eight measures. He goes, okay, okay, that's enough. That's enough. I see. So this is kind of a crappy song. So <laughs> what if I did like a crappy lead and then I lead into a good lead? And Bobby said, well, that sounds good, Stevie. That sounds good. So we we did like the Beatles in the old days. We sang the song in front of all the microphones twice through, got all the tracks down. And then with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. They put up the mic for Stevie to get up and do his lead. 
he got up and he started playing. And <laughs> I could see the grown-up faces behind the, the glass where the engineers were standing. And their their jaws were just dropping. And the engineer goes, uh, son, that was good. Uh, do you have another lead in you? And Stevie goes, sure, man. So he got up and he starts doing one of these things with the high and the low notes and the and just blazing, blazing fast lead. And then I'm looking and in the doorway, the engineer calls down the hallway. I can't hear any of this. It's all behind the soundproof glass. And more grown-ups come into the room and they all stand in front of the son, that was good. Uh can you do one more? Oh sure, man, I could do this all day. Stevie plays again. Uh Everyone was stunned, and I believe, from my opinion, now looking at it, it was because it was the first time we had seen the real thing. And I don't mean like a real guitar player. I mean it's the first time we saw genius, and it will make you drop your jaw when you see it. Uh, That is the first recording of Stevie Ray Vaughan. And I do have that album available on eBay. If (laughs) if anyone... It'll cost you a pretty penny, but I do have, with the original poster. And Didn't put in the legwork to go door-to-door with all of them, Yes, huh? I go door-to-door now. And uh, and it was, I'm thinking like it was when I was doing Great Balls of Fire with Jimmy Vaughn on that film. Jimmy Vaughn and I used to hang out at Kiva Recording Studios where Eric clapped and did some of Layla. And we used to hang out there, smoke grass and and play a little guitar and record stuff just for fun and it was dawn one morning and jimmy and i were leaving because we had to work that day do you remember those days when you <laughs> stayed up all damn night oh and damn we it, stayed up all night this is gonna be a long day and we have to work too we're so unprofessional so you know we go to get breakfast it's dawn and there is stevie there is stevie sitting in this diner in memphis tennessee alone and so Jimmy and I run up to the table. I go, Stevie, Stevie, remember Stephen Topolowski, cast of thousands, remember a new high. And, and he gives me the stink eye. He goes, we don't do that, man. You don't do that. And we sat down. We had breakfast. It was at the, that breakfast that Jimmy Vaughn and Stevie Ray planned to do Family Affair, the, the one album they, they did, did together. together right. okay. Family Business, maybe? I think Family Business is right. Yeah, really. Family Business. And, and so they played together. And so now, instead of having my playmate of Jimmy Vaughn in the evening, uh, Jimmy and Stevie were laying down tracks for that album whenever we weren't shooting Great Balls of Fire. Wow. And Stevie got invited by Eric Clapton to play at a... At Alpine Valley. At, at the big place, what, in Minnesota? It was a Wisconsin Alpine Valley. W- w- Wisconsin. And so we said to Jimmy, he says, Jimmy, believe it or not, Eric Clapton wants me to play, and he said I could have anybody play with with him too would you like to play the three of us eric clapton you and me and jimmy thought like man it was love completion and jimmy goes to play too so the three of them play at that group at the end of the concert stevie jumps on the helicopter uh jimmy jumps on the helicopter and then jimmy's wife connie jumps on the helicopter she lived around the corner from us too and the helicopter pilot says man I'm sorry, ma'am, uh, helicopter's too heavy for, for all of you. You'll have to take the next uh, chopper. So she jumped off the helicopter, and Jimmy said, where my wife goes, I go. And he jumped off the helicopter, too. And 
Jimmy told me the helicopter didn't make it 50 feet up, and then it was a fireball and just crashed. And he spent the next several months putting that album together as his process of mourning. So what? In Judaism, it's 11 months? Right. Or... well, it's, it's seven days, then a month, then a year. Yeah. And then like uh, 11 months for uh, certainly your mother, your father. So he spent at least that amount of time putting that album together. And he said it was his act of mourning, uh, that great gift he got to do the album with Stevie before yeah. the accident. Uh, wow. My brother oh. was at that show, actually, in oh, wow. Alpine Valley that night. Yeah. You want, th- you want to buy the album, New High? Do I? <laughs> and my other question is David Byrne. And I'm working on true stories. Yeah, well, that came about pretty much through Beth. When Beth won the Pulitzer Prize, when you're a shooting star, young woman, that kind of notoriety, you attract the attention of a lot of other shooting stars, one of them being Jonathan Demme. And uh, Jonathan wanted his uh, ex-wife, uh, Evelyn Purcell, to work on one of Beth's scripts. And so we used to go out to dinner all the time, Jonathan and Evelyn and Beth and, and myself. We'd go out and we would talk and goof off. And once Beth and I were coming from Pilates, before Pilates was cool, hmm. we were leaving exercise and Jonathan comes by and says, hey guys, we have a rough cut of a new movie I'm working on, Stop Making Sense, you want to come watch that? And so Beth and I go, sure. So we go with Jonathan to the Academy, which is like a 1900-seat theater right on Wilshire Boulevard. Go in there empty, except for David Byrne, Tina, Jerry, Chris Franz, you know, Talking Heads, David Byrne, Jonathan Demme, Evelyn Purcell, and Beth and me. That's it. So we go into this theater. It was the first time I ever heard Talking Heads music, and it was on the big stereo screen in that movie, which is one of the great musical documentaries ever put together and we flipped out when we saw it and that night we went out to dinner and david uh burn kind of cornered beth and me and he goes tell me all the bad things about the movie i don't want you to tell me it's good tell me the places where it's bad i want to improve it and so we talked for a couple hours and i talked about the movie and david asked if beth and i had a swimming pool which we did at the time uh, thanks to Beth's success, and David was doing a video of Talking Heads' new song, Road to Nowhere. It said, we need some underwater scenes. Can we shoot it at your pool? Yes. So if you go on YouTube <laughs> and look up Road to Nowhere, the swimming pool scenes happen at my house. Nice. So David is there and talking about his new uh film uh, or what he wanted to be a film something called true stories and he wanted everyone in the film to have these crazy but true events that their life was built around and beth said to him well then you ought to talk to my sweetie because he can hear tones yeah so i had this event happen to me when i was 19 years old in college where i could hear tones coming from people's heads right and I, that, and, and then you became something of a sensation as a result of that. I became something of a sensation in our school in that uh, people would pay 25 cents, even a dollar, for me to listen to their tones and tell them about their life. And they would usually leave crying uh, because I would tell them things. How did you know that? You know, how is that possible? And, and I 
Some of the stuff is eerie, Stephen. It is very eerie. I'll make people cry for half that. (laughs) It all began when I was at a movement retreat when I was 19, and our movement class was out by a lake, and our teacher was sitting across from me at 12 o'clock. I'm at 6 o'clock, and he asked everyone to say the first thing that comes into your head as the sun is setting in Dallas, Texas, and people were going like, Frodo, Frodo, far out, weed, beer. (laughs) They're going around, and I'm going like, well, this... This bar is pretty low. You know, I don't know really. And I have nothing in my head. And then I hear this tone in my head. And I look to my teacher across the fire and I go, I get that you're not who you say you are. I get that your name is not your name. And your real initials are MK or ML. And then my teacher goes, all right, fine. And next, and the next guy goes, Hobbit. And then it goes around the... Gandalf, and you know, it goes around the ring again. And the teacher, as I was leaving, he came out of the shadows and said, why did you say that about me? And I said, I don't know. You said, say the first thing that comes into your head. And that was the first thing that came into my head. I just heard this sound and I just said this. He says, has anyone ever done any psychic experiments with you? And I go, no. He says, well, we should do this sometime. So this was the genesis of me being a hot shot in our drama department of making, you know, 75 cents on a good day. <laughs> like being able to tell somebody what your past was. Um, yes, you were molested by your father. You say to, that stuff, actually. I would say that stuff because that's what came into my head. And people would cry, how did you know? How did you know? It was terrible. You're an actress. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it did work. So anyway. So now back to David Byrne. Back to David Byrne, what, like, 19 years later, and uh, David hires Beth and myself to be the screenwriters of True Story. So, and we we write a first draft, give it to David, don't hear anything from him for a year. For a year. Not a word. Not, I liked it. Thank you very much. Hello. Goodbye. Nothing. I'm driving through the Hollywood Hills, and I hear a knock on my window at a stop sign. It's David Byrne on a bicycle. <laughs> And he's, he's doing the signal, like, roll your window down. So, you know, I push the button, and it goes, uh, are you doing anything this afternoon? Uh, I rewrote a lot of the script. Very little of what you did is in there, but I want you to hear something. I said, well, sure, David. Um, go back to the house. And we went back to the house, and David got a little cassette. And for those people in our audience who don't know what a cassette is, it existed in between eight-track tapes and CDs. It was a it was a media device. It carried a song. And on this yeah, song... Yeah, audio only. Audio only. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and David said, I rewrote the script and put a character in there who hears tones uh-huh. like you did and wrote a song for that character, and he played the first version of Radiohead. And it was fantastic because through David Byrne's genius... He preserved the beginning of my relationship with Beth as our relationship was falling apart, kind of like an insect in amber uh-huh. in this beautiful song. And, of course, none of us knew, but that was in, like, 88, something like 1988 when we did True Stories. In 1991, the English band On a Friday was their name, had a band meeting thinking that their name was really kind of not so good. And they love David Byrne, and they love True Stories, and they love the song, and they changed their name to Radiohead. So the band Radiohead got their name from David Byrne's song, 
which came from my story of when I was 19 years old with our teacher. That's wow. unreal. That's, that's unreal. unreal. That, now, that story and its full detail are in My Adventures with God. And, yeah. and, and you go like, how do you explain something like that? You know, I don't have to explain it and say like, well, this was some sort of divine message to me. But it does tell me that our lives are bigger than what we imagine. Our, our playing field is much bigger. You know, it's Canadian football. We're playing Canadian football. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, but how does Judaism, how does Judaism reconcile with that more outside the box uh, spirituality? Judaism. Well, it is very interesting if you take a look at history. History, you could also you could break it down a lot of different ways: kings, queens, princes. But you could also look at it that history goes through periods of time in which the common belief is that everything can be known, like in the Enlightenment like now. And then there are also sandwiched in between periods where they believe truth cannot be known. Uh, this is very much like uh, in the Middle Ages with mysticism, a Woodstock, you know, uh, that you need a little loco weed and need right. to go to the guru in India uh, like the Beatles did to get the truth because the truth cannot really be known. So you have this layer cake of truth and truth not being known and Judaism is a 6,000-year-old layer cake that's built with periods of time in which things could be known, which I would say is like, for example, the 5th century B.C., 5th century B.C.E. This is when, uh, first of all, the Torah, the, the Jewish five books of Moses, was canonized at like, what, 444 B.C., 5th century B.C.E. So you have the, the Old Testament being canonized, you also have uh, Sun Tzu, Ancient Art of War. You also have Confucius writing at the same time. In the 5th century BCE, you have an honoring of wisdom and a belief that truth can be known. And then you have periods of time in which just the mystics take over and they go like, there is, you have to go into a trance and you have to drink this potion and you have to look at the guts of this animal before you know before you read the omens to know what the future is going to be. And so this combination of fact, like the Ten Commandments, you don't get more fact than that. Those ten things, this is how you build a civilization, mixed with mysticism from the Middle Ages of Judaism, creates a very powerful mixture that only history and wisdom can provide of fact-based, knowledge-based this is how the best way to live your life, also mixed with this wild spiritual stuff of what is the light of the first day? Uh, a question from the Zohar, which is a story from Dangerous Animals Club, that in the, the beginning of the Bible, uh, in the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And you go like, oh, great. And as a kid, I figured, oh, yeah, that's a great time. The sun was made. Of course, every, right. God could you work in the light. Yeah. Except the sun wasn't made on the first day. The sun, the moon, the stars, and everything that creates light was created on the fourth day. So then the big question is, what was the light of the first day? And it became this entire mystical construct in the Middle Ages as people were debating what the hell were they talking about about the light of the first day. And it's open to, you know, uh, I guess it was Newton who was saying that the universe abhors a vacuum. And so our minds rush in to answer that question 
And for me, the the answer to that question is the light of the first day is the light of creativity. And that is what makes us human, is is the ability to create with purpose, with artistic purpose, and not just rebuild a warbler's nest the same way over and over again. You know, nobody creates the way man creates. It's definitional. And that, to me, is the light of the first day. And that is, that's our connection to God, is our creativity. Our creativity. Uh, if, you, if you say that um, what God is, is, is the source of creation, then what man is the source of recreation. This recreation. Well, we're in L.A., so there are a lot of sports facilities here. But but the what man does is he takes the bits and pieces he knows and reassembles them in a different pattern. And depending on the validity of that pattern, you have wisdom or not. And that's where man's creativity comes in, is putting together the pieces of whatever's left of our puzzle. The creativity you talk about is brilliant when you see it played out in so many of the circles that you have been associated with. Uh, I would think if you look at the meta picture of what man has done with his creativity, it's not necessarily as bright a creative scenario. It seems as though we've been given this gift of this place and we have defiled it and continue to destroy it and selfishly use it with uh, an utter disregard for the future. You're just being results-oriented. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) That was a downer. We came from the high of the high of the first, uh, the light of the first day to this. I like to bring you you down. But, you you know, I I do believe that when, here in Hollywood in Los Angeles, a lot of my friends are on the more atheist side of the scale and the atheist side of the spectrum. And that's fine because... Not believing is a belief. It's it's an important belief too. It's it's an essential belief is not believing, and the only way you can have that kind of clarity of thinking the good you could do uh, with our creativity is if you take a step back and you really assess the good and the bad that comes from certain beliefs. You know, not all beliefs are created equal. And you see what we have done with our society. And 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 the option is always available to us to try to do something good. Of course, there's always the counteracting causes. You know, I, I, uh, I bring up a story in uh, my adventures with God about the London Zoo. You know, the problem of the London Zoo with the gorillas weren't mating. At, at the London Zoo. So they bring in science, science's answer. They get the gorilla experts and they say, well, the, the gorillas have space. They're not depressed. Uh, they don't have enough room to feel they're back in the jungle, but they certainly have enough room to believe they're in an extended stay Marriott. You know, they they could have some relationships here. And, and so they, they say, well, maybe, you know, gorillas learn about mating from observation in the wild, and perhaps these male gorillas were too young at the time of their capture to know what really makes being a gorilla worthwhile. So they send the London this is my favorite part of the story, the the British government, at great expense to the British taxpayer, sends a film crew to Africa to film gorillas mating. 
kind of guerrilla porn films. Right. And the idea is they're going to cut this into an endless loop, all this mating footage, and play it in the gorilla enclosure. Because life isn't tough enough in the gorilla enclosure. <laughs> all night. They're going to play the gorillas making it movie for, for the male gorillas to watch, and maybe they'll get the idea. And at the end of six months... None of the female gorillas were pregnant, but all of the zookeepers' wives were. <laughs> it is, it is, you know, we do not necessarily and know. the gorillas learned how to masturbate is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> you, the, you know, it is, the, the cause and effect is not as clear cut as we think it is. And a lot of times, which is why religion in a way, is important because you cannot always calculate that, let's say, if you're going to make a car, which is going to make so many things easier, it's also going to poison the air. You know, you cannot put, you, you, we don't end up putting those things together. And so you have to have a higher sort of sense of morality or ethics, well, I want to say morality, th that guides us that leads us because then hopefully we will make wiser choices or at least mitigate some of our mistakes. Yeah, I mean, that's very well put. I, I, I'm going to let you go, but I, I cannot let you go without a, a couple of things, so I'll try to get to them quickly. And one of them, perhaps uh, one of the most important things, is everything that happened to you in this life-and-death moment, I mean, real life-and-death moment, you've faced, uh, I feel as though you've faced a couple of them, but um, these are, uh, if you can just quickly review that, I think it's really something that probably informs a lot of what you're talking about now. It was what we talked about at the beginning today, and that is I broke my neck uh, in five places, five vertebra, a C2 to C6, uh, riding on a horse on the side of an active volcano in Iceland. Yeah. Like, what and, could possibly have gone wrong? Well, and that? why were you in Iceland to begin with? Uh, well, because my wife, Anne, and I, we love riding. We love horses. And uh, we, we've, I mean, we owned horses. I had lost my voice for this particular trip. This is a key, but this is a key yeah, thing. Yeah, I... I lost my voice, and it wasn't so much. And you know, Mark, with how difficult this is, I had a growth on my vocal cord, and it wasn't cancerous, but it had to be operated on, and I had to be silent for two months. And we had to figure out some activity that was I could recover and be silent, and horseback riding is very relaxing as long as you wear the right underwear. And... I had the surgery. We went to Iceland to have this vacation because we had done it before, twice before, and loved riding there. And you're away from everything. You won't need to use your voice particularly. You don't need to use your voice on, a, on an Icelandic course. All of the cues are done with what they call your seat. And with your legs, you, you don't have to vocalize anything. You control it all with your body that, to go, to stop, everything. You know, it's it's great. And we were going to be, spend three days on horseback going from one part of the island to another part of the island, going over mountains and across rivers and plains. And it's so, so beautiful. And the last ride of the last day, we're on the uh, 
near the top of the volcano. I meant my horses in the lead, and we were hit by this incredible wind that, and this is not an exaggeration, this is no lie, this wind was so powerful, it lifted me and the horse off the ground, carried us a few yards, and dropped us. My horse took this as God saying, giddy up, and he took off. And I'm trying to keep my balance, and somewhere on the other side of the mountain, I was thrown onto a hardened lava flow. Uh, They found me, according to legend, they found me on the only piece of soft vegetation on the whole basaltic plain in a fetal position. And the head of the Icelandic riding group came up with another horse and said, uh, I brought a horse. I got up, he said, jumped on the horse, said I felt sick. He said, well, maybe you were hurt in the fall. And I said, what fall? He said, get off the horse. They took me to the hospital in Reykjavik. They said I had a fractured vertebra, that I could stay on vacation. They put me in a soft collar that people use in sitcoms to say you've been injured. Uh You know, one of those things. I get to New York uh, we're swapping planes in Kennedy, and an old man with a beard came up to me. He was a big fan from Deadwood. You know, I could always recognize the Deadwood fans because the men have beards and the women have tattoos. And he came up to me, and he says, what, what's with the collar? You figure out some way to get around security. And I said, uh, actually, I had a little accident in Iceland, fractured a vertebra, I believe. He pulled me aside. He said he was the head of neurosurgery at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. And I was in the wrong brace. And he said, you could die in this brace. You need to hold your neck. And he demonstrated like strangling all the way to Los Angeles. I get to Los Angeles. I go back to my doctor. They fit me for a hard brace. And he's the guy who said, you have a fatal injury. And the reason why I lived was because of a curse. A curse. I had advanced arthritis of the neck, and my vertebra were overlapping, enlarged, bone on bone. He said, your arthritis acted like armor and saved your life and kept your neck from being snapped. And it was during this period of recovery that I began writing these stories for my kids. It was during this period of recovery that I recognized I'm probably alive because not of one miracle, but of a series of miracles. And this is what sort of led me into when Simon & Schuster called up after Dangerous Animals Club. And they said, well, people love the humor in your stories, but they also are liking the spiritual bent of the stories. Can you write another series of stories connected by spiritual fabric? I use this story of me and the horse in Iceland and the David Byrne story of the unexplainable that has guided my life that has defined my life, and that we are, in fact, playing Canadian football. Bigger field than we could ever possibly imagine. And one fewer down than we thought we should. (laughs) One fewer down! (laughs) We should have more! The books are The Dangerous Animals Club and My Adventures with God. They're funny, poignant, and spiritual. I really congratulate you. I had no idea. You're a real writer, you know, and that's a... Thank you. It's a terrific surprise, so, yeah. Yeah, I was... you know, we were talking before when people yell stuff at you. One of the greatest things anyone yelled at me was in Dallas, Texas. I was at a grocery store, and they go, oh, my God, you're Stephen Tobolowsky, the author. <laughs> yeah. And I went, damn. 
And no. and it was the nicest compliment ever. Well, please come visit us again with other stories. I mean, there's so many. I didn't even touch on a bunch that I wanted to get to. I just We, we only have you for, for this time, but thanks, Stephen Tobolowsky. You bet. Thank okay. you so much. so much. Link to these books on our website at edge-show.com. Thanks, Jay Elvis. Bye, everybody. Get more of The Edge on Stitcher and iTunes, or go to our website, edge-show.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.